0: Monkey Off My backlog second weekly podcast, where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam.
1: I know you're thinking that we recorded this episode a week after we recorded the last episode because we just think that's the way it works, right? Like you had to wait a week, so obviously we had a week in between. Well, that's not true. There was no hurricane here, by the way. We reported to you from Hurricane Central last time, and then Hurricane Central decided it didn't want to spend any more time with us.
0: The short version of that is we're fine. Hopefully anyone who is in the path of Hurricane Ian is also fine.
1: Right. I mean, that's the thing about it, is that we're fine because there was nothing to be not fine with. There are plenty of people who that could not be said for. So we're lucky. So we're going to talk about Star Trek two days after we talked about it last time.
0: This week, we are discussing the Next Generation episodes, Heart of Glory and Symbiosis, two episodes that involve the Enterprise responding to distress calls.
1: You know what's really interesting? I was thinking about this when we were watching, I think it was Symbiosis, but it's probably true and I'm really, we've seen some episodes that deal with characters. Their conflicts, whatever, are part of the main story, but these kinds of episodes really don't center the enterprise at least how they're pitched and i was thinking that when we started watching and thinking well what are the star trek actors do it's like almost like the guest stars are the ones who have the stuff to do you know you think about the conflict between the two the two peoples right like that's a showcase for those four actors what's interesting and maybe this is another thing that's better than it was on TOS, that they find a way to talk about other people's stories, but still manage to give the actors really good stuff to do. You know, it's ways to fill out their character or think about how a character would naturally react to these things that are happening external to them.
0: It's kind of like how She-Hulk, at least for the first few episodes, Really deals with like other stories, but uses it to further She-Hulk slash Jen's story as well. Another example would be back half of season one of Sandman. Yeah. Where they're telling a story in each episode and he's part of it, but in some of them he doesn't even show up until the very end.
1: Well, I think in some ways this is this is a way to think about this season as season four of Star Trek writ large, right? We don't know. Well, we're getting to know toward the end of the first season. We're getting to know these characters, and the writers are getting to know these characters. The difference is the writers and the actors know Star Trek. Adaptations can do this too, although they're, some are more successful than others. I think Sandman's doing a pretty good job. The goal of, and it's usually about a third season before you can do this where the characters are defined well enough, That you can live in that world. You don't have to establish anything. You can just live in it. And so it's more natural in some ways to to write. It also apparently can be very hard. Because you have to fight against those instincts to build. You don't have to build anymore. You can live in it now. And I think that's happening a lot in TNG Season 1. Which, as I said, is the best case for thinking of it as Season 4 of Star Trek. Period. This is, of course, something that the Star Wars universe is terrible at doing. (laughs) You've established a universe. Good job. Quit talking about this one family. We're over it.
0: Explore some other stuff. Apparently,
1: HBO is doing a better job at this with the Targaryens.
0: Interesting.
1: I don't know. We still
0: haven't seen House of the Dragon, dear listeners. We have not. Game of Thrones broke our hearts once. We'll get to it. Let's dive right in to the first episode that we're talking about today, Heart of Glory, which is the 20th episode of the first season. The story was created by Herbert Wright and DC Fontana. That's a name that we've definitely heard before. It was first broadcast on March 21st, 1988. The episode was directed by none other than our favorite Rob Bowman of X-Files fame, which I actually think is really important to bring up Rob Bowman as the director of this episode because this episode actually does some really interesting things with camera angles that I would like to talk about and apparently when i was reading up on it that's because of him like he's the one who was like i want to do some stuff with the camera
1: it's funny that we're we're talking about rob bowman in terms of what he did before the x files because we also just watched john carpenters the thing for an upcoming episode of
0: spooktales Spooktober. Son of Spooktober.
1: And there's an, I believe it's Ice, I think is just the title of the episode from season one. It's the Mm -hmm. ammonia-based life forms that I believe I have referenced on this very podcast.
0: (laughs) I just love her reaction. No. no. It is,
1: but but that episode is very clearly influenced by the thing. Oh, it's
0: almost a direct.
1: I know. It was really something seeing that. But anyway, the the point is that it's funny to be talking about Rob Bowman as well. It's like it's like pop culture had to be primed properly for something like The X-Files.
0: Yeah, I mean, I fully believe that I think that there's a good deal of shows that make it big like The X-Files that are like truly cultural touchstones that I think depends heavily on like you said priming but also Zeitgeist. The right. pr- it's the show in the right place at the right time.
1: Well, and we we were also talking about apprenticeships lately. Not on a podcast, but... For, no,
0: we were talking but, about it on... Uh, oh, we did? Yeah, we talked about it for the When the Bow Breaks episode. That was last week in podcast time travel.
1: Yeah, congratulations. I've officially forgotten something we did two days ago. <laughs> anyway, the point is, this is also that, right? Because you have Rob Bowman coming in and being able to play a major role on the X-Files as the result of this, which would be the apprenticeship, of course. But then the X-Files also served as an apprenticeship for people like Vince Gilligan, who have, you know, you think about all the people who say that Better Call Saul is a better show than Breaking Bad. And that would be, if that were true, and I'm I'm okay with saying it is. I think they're a part of the same story. I really don't see them as two separate series. And I don't think we're invited to either. I think it's kind of a false dichotomy. But the bottom line is, The X-Files prime the pump for something like that kind of very non-linear storytelling that Vince Gilligan did. So it's really interesting, the way that we can tie these pieces of pop culture together. And by the way, we can do them much more successfully than Star Trek The Motion Picture did. Because if you want to be a descendant in theory or idea or practice of 2001 or most anything that Stanley Kubrick did, stop. Don't do it.
0: (laughs) Do not attempt to replicate this.
1: Don't attempt to replicate it. Don't attempt to like be a part of it. Don't... <laughs> no, you don't want this.
0: All right, let's actually talk about the episode here 10 minutes in. It okay. was a cold open. The Enterprise responds to a distress call in the neutral zone, finding a badly damaged freighter with only three Klingons inside. They claim to have been attacked by the Ferengi, but Worf discovers that they are Klingon renegades determined to steal the Enterprise.
1: For this being a Star Trek episode and a Star Trek podcast, can we go a week without Admiral Akbar vibes?
0: It's a trap.
1: Mon Calamari vibes.
0: <laughs> the three Klingons are played by Vaughn Armstrong, who is a big deal in Star Trek. I think he's played over 12 different characters in Star Trek, including a reoccurring role in Enterprise. We also have uh, Charles Hyman, who's done a lot of TV work, and then Robert Bauer, but although his role is very short because he dies of his, his character dies of his wounds fairly quickly. So it, these are like Trek TV veterans, right? These are people who have done this before, and they're showing up in the, the Klingon makeup. Sam, what did you think about this episode?
1: First of all, I'm super glad they showed up in the Klingon makeup. That is not the same Klingon makeup as the first time they showed up in the original series.
0: Yeah, we have finally found some Klingon makeup and prosthetics that looks not offensive.
1: (laughs) So I guess there are two things. And classic me, by the time I get to the second one, there'll be a third one, right? Of course, yeah. Let's see what happens. The first thing is that this is also a curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal episode. Why did you, you showed him the warp core.
0: That very much reminds me of Space Seed when Khan asks to study the schematics of the Enterprise and Kirk is just like, oh yeah, sure, here's the computer.
1: And you could say that it's a utopian society, blah, 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 I don't buy it. That's just foolish. It's Foolish. Should not have done that. So I, I think that, you know, if you want to think about a writing flaw in this episode, it's, they didn't really think hard enough about how to make the episode go. They just took the easy way out. We talked a lot about 80s television in the last episode, and I think that you can go back farther than that. You know, there was a great suspension of disbelief, I think, on the part of the audience to... I mean, it's like Batman 66, right? That warden should have been fired, okay? (laughs) Like, you just... Like, recidivism is a problem.
0: Not to mention that they apparently just spend like 2 weeks in jail every yeah, single mean, time. I mean that's the thing. I it's mean, just
1: it doesn't it but we suspend our disbelief because the show doesn't happen otherwise. Except it could if you really tried to, you know, imagine the premise of uh, uh, these people constantly breaking out of jail. In fact, the penultimate episode of Batman does just that. We we watched it the other day. I think shows today are much more cognizant of that, that they have to earn their stakes, whether that's establishing a world and building characters or not taking a plot shortcut. Anyway, the episode itself, Worf being challenged, right? We find out, I mean, there may have been more discussion about his origin story in episodes we didn't watch.
0: There wasn't. This was the first time that any of these things had come up in the show. Okay,
1: so for me, it's definitely my introduction to... He is basically he's basically Star Trek Clark Kent.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that right? reference, but yeah, that is absolutely right.
1: Well, and I'm thinking about that not just because, you know, he was a baby from another planet, that's kind of a refugee. I'm thinking about when Clark begins to interact with his dad through the Fortress of Solitude and all that kind of stuff. Smallville really gets into this eventually, so you'll enjoy that when it happens. You know, Kal-El is supposed to go through this, this crisis, and he's gone through it in comics and in movies and then again on Smallville. He's gone through it many times, but what's your allegiance? Do you have allegiance to your birth planet or your home planet, right? Which is another, you know, it's a big adoption thing, too. That's what they're doing there as well. Not just a refugee home country storyline. It's an adoption storyline.
0: And and moreover, it's a transracial adoption storyline. I mean, true. or trans species in this case. Right.
1: And the episode is not gonna get into it. I don't know. You know, Star Trek, I think the way we've talked about it, it's good at asking questions, coming up with premises. I don't know how good it is yet at exploring those. Maybe it will get better. I suspect it does, or else you people wouldn't be so obsessed with it. But I digress. <laughs> it doesn't. It's nice to know what Worf's backstory is. It is, of course, a good feeling to see him back his found family over his, you know, quote-unquote home family, his home culture. Again, there's more to be explored there, and we didn't. And and by the way, if this show was made now. We would not have that question answered as fully as we did in this episode. They they'd give us a dramatic musical cue and think, "Oh, this is gonna come back later." Like he supported his his federation buddies this time. Maybe he won't the next time.
0: I have to tell you, this is not a tension that is completely resolved in Worf as a character.
1: Well, it shouldn't be. I mean, it and, would be terrible if it was.
0: Yeah. So a lot of people. They don't necessarily like the episode because like you said, there's a lot of sort of forced artificiality about the plot, the actual plot of the episode. But a lot of people really like the idea that it introduces us. It reintroduces us to the Klingons. First of all, Mm -hmm. this is the first time we've really seen the Klingons since the undiscovered country, the film, right? Where they made peace with the federation. And so it reintroduces us to the Klingons. It sort of reintroduces us to Worf, who has been really a background character at this point. But it also introduces us to this, this whole culture that we really haven't seen that much before because they were always the enemy, right? They were always the the people that the Federation was fighting. Now we have the opportunity to, oh, we can tell Klingon stories now. We can, we can have them interact with Worf. We can have them interact with other members of the crew. We can develop this whole culture that previously... We just kind of used for a lazy stand-in for the Vietnam War.
1: And on top of that, we get into, you know, of course, the Ferengi are mentioned. Yes. But so are the Romulans.
0: Yeah, I liked Picard's joke. That's a name we haven't heard in a while because we haven't really done any Romulan storylines since TOS.
1: I assume we do. Oh, yeah. We still haven't watched season three of The Orville yet. But the end of C, or really the second half, second last third of season two, is, correct me if I'm wrong, but very analogous to more of the Romulan situation than the Klingon situation. Is that right? That's right. Just reminded me of that. I mean, it's funny when my frame of reference for Romulans has nothing to do with the Romulans. It's actually another show.
0: So we (laughs) actually do meet the Frankie in season one in one episode that we skipped because it wasn't good. I was
1: going to ask you that.
0: But also because the Ferengi, I don't want to like give too much away, but like, as a species, when I say the Ferengi and our listeners who are familiar with Trek hear that, they think of a completely different kind of species and completely different touch points than the first season of the show really had mm. for those characters. So I was hesitant to introduce you to them yeah. because they're just going to be re- rebooted unlike, later. <laughs>
1: unlike when you introduced me to the Klingons the first time and- Ouch.
0: Yeah, that was pretty bad. But that so, was the point, right? Yeah. I mean, it's,
1: it's important to look at something like that to see how the progression is and how we get better.
0: And I do want to ask you a little bit about specific things in this story. Um, you,
1: you might as well, because on a yeah. bigger level, I don't really have much left to no, say no, no, about I
0: it. have a lot of questions to ask you about this that I'm uh, interested in your oh answers boy. to. So. One thing that we notice, I noticed right away, is that they are much more friendly to the Federation, like very happy to be picked up by Picard, which is very different from that one episode we saw of the Klingons being picked up by the Enterprise earlier, and then they all fight, remember? And so this is very different than the Klingons that we have seen before. However, we find out that these three Klingons, really two, because the first one dies fairly quickly, they are renegades themselves from Klingon culture. They don't really agree with the Alliance. They're not fighting it like some of the Klingons were in undiscovered country, but they are looking for a place where they can reenact what they see as essential Klingon values. A lot of which are rooted in violence. A lot of which are rooted in things like warlike culture, the idea of like fighting and dying in battle. Like that's the only honorable death, which gets echoed by other Klingons in other parts of this episode So what I wanted to ask you is, what did you think about this sort of reintroduction of Klingon society through these three renegades and then through the captain of the ship that we see later?
1: It's really what you would expect, isn't it? I mean, if you've seen the original series, I don't really know how much it matters if you've seen the original series, but if you've seen The Undiscovered Country, this is what you would expect. Like This is what I would expect. This grudging acceptance. I, I, I think it's it's a grudging acceptance, and I think that there's a spectrum, as there always is. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that, that there are at least conflicts threatened in the future with the Federation and the Klingons. Like, they're not besties yet. Right. I would not be surprised to learn that.
0: And the Klingons are not part of the Federation. They right. are a separate entity.
1: Right. So... Knowing all that, I would not be surprised that you have people who are not willing to go along yet. I mean, you think about any movement that we have here that's based on national conflict or colonial conflict or any other kind of conflict that's been violent. When you have this kind of peace declared, it's never just over. So it doesn't surprise me that these people exist. That's just the way it is. Or the way it's been that we know of, you know, the captain seems exactly what I would think he is. I thought it was interesting that his reaction was, oh, okay, well, I guess they had to die, right? Okay, we're all good here. That was the one thing that might have been surprising. I I wondered if he wasn't going to get mad that they couldn't do Klingon justice. But, as he says, they're just empty husks. Throw them out the earlock. So, I mean, I guess maybe... Maybe the act of taking the act of justice in that it's related to the result of justice. Maybe that's not what's important to them. Maybe it's about the consequences. I, I, I don't know.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that there are two identity crises going on, and they're interconnected. There's Worf's identity crisis, and there's also the Klingon Empire's identity crisis that's going on here, that's hinted at, right? Because there's this idea that like things are changing. We've allied with the Federation. We're moving forward with our society and our culture. But then people like Corliss they hold on to this idealized past. It's very nostalgic, the type of thing that he talks about. So it's interesting that both Worf, who sort of appeals to the captain on Corliss's behalf, saying like, you know, I understand where he's coming from. I don't agree with him, but I understand it. And the captain, it's almost like the captain wanted them to die like that so they wouldn't have to take them back and punish them because the Klingons believe in a good death. That's like a big part of their society. So the other identity crisis that we have is, of course, in Worf. And Michael Dorn has said that this episode was really the first episode they let him loose on this character and let him actually have things to really do, which I agree with. I think that that's, he does such a great job of, of exploring this character here. But the I wanted to focus on his code switching, because there's a lot of it in this episode. There is this idea that what we have been seeing from Worf all this time is a Federationized version of him. He knows how to communicate with the Federation. He's still very proud of who he is as a Klingon, and of course, there are always these like misunderstandings that he has with them. But for the most part, he knows how to talk Federation. He knows how to behave in a Federation ship. He knows how to interact with them in ways that don't, you know, come across as alarming to them. But he also remembers enough of his culture and knows enough about his culture to code switch when he's around the Klingons. He participates in the death yell. He's able to speak yeah. Klingon to them.
1: How does he know all this?
0: I don't think he was a baby. Uh, I think he was like a small child.
1: Okay. Yeah, but still.
0: He said it's before the age of inclusion, which I think is a right. teenager thing.
1: So, okay, that makes a little more sense. Because I was thinking about this, and and I want to say this very carefully. We think of code switching in a couple of different ways. Primarily, we think about it as a way that... Black Americans can operate in a system that is white, if not by the looks of it, definitely by the way it was created. However, you can also talk about code switching very legitimately in some different ways. You can talk about it in terms of people who grew up in Appalachia who have to learn how to not talk Appalachian in order to right. succeed in that very same culture because the culture is very exclusionary. And, you know, we think about it primarily in a couple of ways. But until recently, I understood what code switching was in theory. But I've never really had to practice it. I never had a a southern accent I had to mask. For some reason, I just chose not to do that. But when you aren't out as a trans person guess what you're doing and so i i just thought it was interesting thinking about how would you know how to be a klingon if your growing up has been mostly around within the federation you know first with a family affiliated with the federation and then the academy right like how did you pick up all of this and and how do you What's your comfort level with performing it? Like they do, like he participates in that death cry, and uh, is it? It's Data who says, "I think that might be the first time anyone who's not a Klingon has gotten to see it." Which right? Wow!
0: And he probably would have heard it on Kettmer, which was the colony that was destroyed by the Romulans that his parents right. and family died in. So
1: the big point here is. I wonder about the code switching. I wonder if he truly is code switching. Here's why. Without trying to take anything away from his identity, thinking about it again from my point of view, I wasn't code switching. And and we talk about socialization, right? You know, being socialized male and socialized female is is bullshit. It's not real. It's crap. Okay? But what is true is when you learn a set of appropriate Actions and speech, and you perform it, it's very natural because it's the only thing you ever do. You may be having an internal struggle or not, if you haven't realized it yet. But the point is, and, and, and so that's why I'm not trying to contradict because there are, you know, Worf has external markers. It's clear he is not like the others. I get that. But he's grown up doing the actions so much. How conscious is it? that he's code switching, not that it's unconscious, I'm not saying it is, but how consciously does he have to perform it when he's doing code switching and he's switching to what's more natural? It's more natural, but is it more comfortable? I that's think that's an excellent question. Th- right, I mean, because that's, that's the thing that I'm running into now, is that going back and switching to the thing that should be, the code that i'm operating in the level that i'm operating at doesn't it's scary and it doesn't feel comfortable which is different than what's happening in this episode but a nice thing to explore that wasn't explored would be how does worf feel around klingons does he feel like an imposter does he feel and we see this narrative a lot when 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 asian americans go to you know, whether it's Korea or China or Japan or any other country in Asia where they were either born or their parents or grandparents were born, right? They are American and they have that, you know, that ancestry. And you see a lot of accounts of not feeling comfortable in either place. And I wonder if that's the kind of thing, and I know it's bad because Klingons have that Orientalist origin to them. But in some ways, that seems to be the comparison that works the best here.
0: Well, and I actually think this is a really that good That was really point. a
1: long way of getting to something. No,
0: I, I appreciate where you did get to because that was another thing that I had noted was that he doesn't seem to, in this episode, belong to either the Federation or the Klingons. Right. Because, like for an example, after the death cry, Picard actually says... I I don't understand this ritual that I just witnessed. And it seemed like he was a different person while he was performing in it. Like I'd never seen him like that before. And then on the flip side of it, the Klingons, despite their friendliness to Picard at the beginning, are so mean to Worf for like the first like hour of knowing him. Because in in later, Corliss says it's because they're trying to see if he can still get angry, which is a big part of like Klingon identity is that anger and that violence. But then when they're talking about his origins, they say like, "Oh, but you never fit in there, did you? You were always too big. Right. You were always too strong. You were always too violent, and they they hated you too."
1: But this is where and and by the way, just to you know. Go back to the issue of code switching. Anybody who code switches will have this problem that you're bringing up because I mean, it's just that idea of you can't go home again. Whether it's the person who leaves Appalachia to go to college and is now too educated or at least perceived that way because because it can be your discomfort but it's often other people's discomfort. It, you know, In the trans community we talk about detransitioning. There are a lot of people who Transition who realize that it's not the same. Like the discomfort, like once you open that door and go through it, you can physically walk back through it, but it will not be the same. I mean, it might be okay, but it, it won't be the same.
0: I think this is a really interesting idea. And I almost think that's why Worf wants to hang out with them because he sees their beliefs in this like essential Klingon identity as a way of learning about what it means to be Klingon.
1: Right. But, but he can't escape the judgment. Right. And, and that's really, that's really hard. And they could have done so much more with that. I think is the point.
0: Yeah. And I don't think it helps that even though clearly relations between the Klingon Empire and the Federation are much better than they used to be, clearly the people in the Federation still don't interact with a lot of Klingons from the Klingon Empire because we get this really interesting scene where Corliss picks up a child and Tasha thinks that he's about to take that child hostage and he just hands her back to Tasha- And when she said, "I thought we were going to have a bad situation there for a moment," to Worf, Worf Mm -hmm. snaps at her and says, "We don't do that. Like hiding
1: behind a hostage is a sign of weakness."
0: Right. And so I, to me, that seemed like it was very clear racial Mm -hmm. metaphor. Right. This idea that Klingons are violent, that they're
1: yeah, you said it when we were watching the episode. Yeah,
0: it was very. It was a very like racist assumption that she was making.
1: I mean, that's one. And the the fact
0: that she's basically a space cop doesn't make it any better.
1: That's one of the things about othering, right? What's really fascinating about it is you assume that somebody who looks different or is from a different place has fundamental differences. And, you know, individuals have differences from each other, so I guess. But what's really fascinating about that is the second step in that, where you know they are different, and rather than finding out how, you just assume Right and and that's the and, and, and this really does tie into what we talked about last week. when you're not willing to do that work of thinking about the other people around you, bad things are gonna happen.
0: right. And I feel like because the Klingons they do worship violence, they do worship battle and war, there is this also stereotyping of like, oh well, they must be that way to everyone. Mm -hmm. And Even though there are clear rules for Klingons when it comes to the rules of engagement, basically. Right. So it almost seems like the Federation hasn't shaken off that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of ironic that humans, for lack of a better term, assume that the Klingons are emotional and irrational because they love violence. Which is an irrational response because if you know anything about Klingons... Although they are different from Vulcans in many ways, rationality does rule. So I'm not irrational. You're rational, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what's happening here.
0: Yeah, I think that that's, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, right. Fear based on irrationality is, you guessed it, irrational.
0: Irrational. So this all resolves in a very interesting scene where Worf faces off Corliss on the second deck of the Warp Core, which is not really a place that we've seen so far. Rob Bowman wanted this particular location in the episode because it allowed him to do camera angles underneath looking up and also ca- camera angles looking down. Ding. We call
1: that in the business the Wells effect.
0: <laughs> I thought or was... the Kane
1: effect. I mean, I guess really either one.
0: Yeah, I thought it was really cool the way that this scene has him like crashing through the, the glass and... I don't know. What did you think about this particular innovation on Bowman's part?
1: I haven't thought a second thing about it. It did not register, but it does remind me that the Klingons are also obsessed with the saucer.
0: Yes, they are.
1: (laughs) You mean we can take the family portion out of this sedan and just roll without it? Let's (laughs) do it.
0: The battle bridge comes up again. It did. Yeah, I was shocked.
1: It did. Yeah, I was shocked. Yeah, but the thing about it is is and, and so this connects to your question. I didn't really think about it. I didn't really notice it. It didn't really register. But good for them for using the geography of the bigger ship. Good for them.
0: Yeah, we haven't seen a lot of that yet. Except for
1: the battle bridge mentioned.
0: Yeah. That, yeah, we haven't seen a lot of that yet, but I, I'm interested to see how how this develops as we go along. So this whole thing ends with this this confrontation between Wharf and Corliss. And Worf has this really interesting moment where he seems to actually synthesize his two identities when he's responding to Corliss, because he responds, the battle is within, not without. You know, where, where is your talk of duty, honor, and loyalty? These are things that are important to Klingons. But it seems like he's able to take those values that he knows are important to Klingons, but then synthesize it with Federation ideas about, like, the battle within, becoming a better individual couple of last things before we move on. One, uh, we haven't even talked about the whole cold open of the episode in which Jordy develops tech to show them how he sees. Which I thought was really cool actually. I had totally forgotten about this.
1: He has that aura because he's an android. Can't you see that too?
0: It's really interesting the way Jordy doesn't know about the way that humans see. Right. Or you know, because he's post-human. He's a cyborg. But it's also really weird the way that Picard is like, how can you make anything out? Like this just seems like too much. And Jordy's just like, you just have to concentrate on things. You
1: know, you could be really, really overly simplistic with this and say, This is this is hashtag colorblind society. I don't see color. Right? I mean, yeah. like, I can see somebody taking this and using it to to promote those ends. See, I of colorblindness, no, I don't think you should. Yeah, but I know that somebody could. It's a really facile way of thinking about that cold open, which is like that's like a Simpsons move to for like me, start an episode with a concept. Yes, that has nothing to do with the nothing main story. To do We're with just this. doing this for a while. We just
0: thought it would be cool.
1: Which I mean, come on, man. We need. We need. I think we need to explore this more.
0: Yes, for me, what this what this represented was the idea that like people have different bodies and those bodies do different things. And the way that one person sees might not be the way other people see. And uh, to me, it was a disability inclusion. What what
1: would it be to not see Riker as apparently the most attractive person in the entire universe? (laughs) What would it be just to see him as a person?
0: As a blob. What is
1: wrong with all of you? all of you. We
0: also of course get at the beginning the best friend squad which we have named <laughs> Jordy, was, Data and Will. That
1: was so great. It was really great when Picard said Tasha needs to stay. Riker, I just expected him to say best friend squad.
0: <laughs> best friend squad assemble. <laughs> and they did.
1: He the the true the reason you know they are the best friend squad is he didn't have to say it. I yeah. mean
0: Yeah, they just went. They knew. They knew. And I also... So the thing that he has on his visor, he's like, oh, Data and I have been working on this. And like, they are the two nerds that would work on this in their free time. Like, they are such... Oh, I just love them together because literally, Data will come up with this idea, and you could see Jordi flipping a table, but in being like, of course, "Of course, we should do that," and then spending six hours working on this project. I
1: like. See, so you said six hours again. You said it at the time we watched it, and I'm like, six hours more like six days. Yeah,
0: exactly. Oh my god. So such nerds. All right, let's move on <laughs> to the second episode, which was Symbiosis which was the 22nd episode of the first season. It first aired on April 18th, 1988. The teleplay was written by Robert Lewin, Richard Banning, and Hans Beilmer, based on a story by Lewin. That's that's somebody that we've also seen in Star Trek. And the episode was directed by Wynn Phelps. While observing a solar storm, the Enterprise receives a distress call. That's number two for this week. From an unknown ship about to disintegrate in a planet's atmosphere, the crew works together to save the people on the ship, who turn out to be from two different planets, Brekka and Onara. Picard finds himself trapped in a sticky negotiation between the two groups. Sam, what was your first impression of this episode?
1: First of all, is it symbiosis or symbiosis?
0: Oh my god.
1: Hi everybody. Sam here. I want to talk to you today about an evil that we face. I want to talk to you about capitalism. <laughs> Now, I know that's a foreign term to many of you. You might not be familiar with it. But you see, capitalism is a way of assembling and running, curating, if you will, a society that is based on a few people having a lot and just about everybody having none. Other people will tell you that That's not what capitalism is. And it's much more complex than that. I want you to listen to your old buddy, Sam. I don't want you to listen to those people because they are either A, the people at the top, or B, the foolish, foolish humans who think they can get there. In conclusion, I want you to think about capitalism as something that is really, really bad. It is killing us less than 2% of this society has 50% of the wealth, right? It's bad. It's bad. And so in a utopian society, capitalism cannot possibly exist because it is an evil. And what is utopia if not the ability to live without evil?
0: That was inspiring. That was what almost a Picard speech.
1: I I mean I kind of lost the thread a couple times but <laughs> but I did you my made best. it
0: you made it to the end. I did my best.
1: I kept I did pretty good on tone. That's what I was re- you know.
0: Yeah. Before we get to the relationship between these two planets, I have to say the other cold open or cont- long long open I should say. There's another Simpsons in here where the first like quarter of the episode is them trying to rescue these people from their ship <laughs> and they are being Like, the least helpful about it.
1: I mean, Picard did everything but yell, are you high? Come on, man. (laughs) Which, I mean, he was. So.
0: I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Either
1: high or going through withdrawal. I mean, either way, what's really fun about the cold open is it makes no sense until the very end of the episode when, oh, I see. Yeah. You guys are stoners.
0: (laughs) He's like, (laughs) I don't know how to put that in. <laughs> Let me ask somebody.
1: Nobody oh knows how god. to do it.
0: <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, we get to see Can the. Can you fi- send
1: over some snack food with that thing.
0: The first. This is really the first time that we see Picard put his head in his hands. Oh, it was. So good. It's really a comedy of errors, but of course we quickly discover that these two cultures live in what Picard and Crusher, who are really the two the two people at the center of this episode, what they call symbiosis. I honestly think that's the wrong term. I think it's parasitic is what we should be calling it. Well,
1: I mean, going back to the thing about capitalism, of course the rich people think it's a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. Of course they do. Right. The poors are going to see it as parasitic. Except, except this is where what I said about capitalism really does come into play. The reason capitalism manages to succeed and get the stranglehold that it has right now on society, when we are having a terrible moment that exists because we have this very weird relationship with capital that isn't natural in any sense of the word, right? Part of the reason we got there, and this is what Karl Marx said, right? Like, Stop thinking you can be one of them it will never happen and and i think part of that's at play here right is the reason it's referred to as a symbiotic relationship is the assumption that both sides have to exist which is technically true you know letter of the law true but you're right it's parasitic and and the only reason you can call it you know symbiotic instead of parasitic is that one side doesn't know, right? Uh, and, of course, and that's where Picard comes in, right? Picard right. says we cannot change that; we cannot let them know it's a parasitic relationship, which is, of course, where we diverge right. from the you know the comparison to capitalism.
0: Well, I think also, and this comes from my work in in science fiction and, and talking about capitalist systems. The other thing that we know about capitalism is if they don't have labor, or if they don't have Someone to sell to yeah. or exploit, they will create that, and so that is basically what the Brekkians are doing to the Onarans: is that they have created a situation in which they can exploit the Onarans. Can
1: can we talk about how much of a different episode this would be? It's instead of the Brekkians, it was the Brektians?
0: <laughs> the Brektians.
1: Uh, can I? I, I really want to flip the script here. I want to ask you a question.
0: Ooh,
1: this is now a. Episode within an episode of Sam watches Star Trek. This is Tessa watches Star Trek. Ooh, Tessa, in the episode, Picard says that it violates the prime directive to let the Onarans know that they are being taken advantage of, That that they have been hooked on a drug that, yes, was used to treat a plague, but that plague's been gone for a long time. You had very strong feelings that... That is not, that's just not true.
0: I changed my mind. You did? Yes.
1: Why did you change your mind? I
0: changed my mind actually when he gave that speech in the turbo lift (laughs) because he actually laid out his argument fairly well.
1: Well, okay. But before you changed your mind, what was your problem?
0: Originally, I thought, well, they have space travel so they can interact with these beings or they can interact with them on a fairly even level. But then I, real- I hadn't quite realized yet the extent to which they actually didn't have space travel, even though they had ships, because they don't know how to prepare their ships. They don't actually know how to use the technology they have. This is very similar to the episode When the bow Breaks, where you have uh, the Aldeans living in the ruins of their ancestors, where they don't understand their technology. Well, I mean, Okay.
1: The Prime Directive is about not interfering with people or civilizations that aren't as advanced as yours. But there's a caveat there. It's defined. It cannot interfere with the normal development of a society, you know, in terms of having technology, knowledge, whatever. I wonder, though, did they never have that? Can the Prime Directive be revoked? Because that seems to be what's happening here. We don't know. We are not given the data what these people were like 200 years ago, before they were like forcibly stoned for 200 years straight and didn't know how to do anything. Is it a violation of the Prime Directive if you don't know these things anymore? So the, the, the thing that turns here is the unpreparedness. If it's you're hard sus- to
0: think of a culture that's more unprepared than the Onarans, Well, but this
1: goes back to the, the TOS episode that we talked about last time. Those people woke up and didn't know what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. But we still interfered with them because their ancestors are the ones who put them in that position. Right. There's a reasonable belief that these people did have technological know-how. They just lost it.
0: The one thing I'll say is that TOS tends to play more fast and loose with the Prime Directive yeah. than subsequent shows. Do. I, I
1: just don't know. I, I I I am not convinced. You you say you changed your mind. I am not convinced. I
0: changed my mind because of what Picard says in the Turbo Lift to Crusher, where he says every time we have tried to interfere with an unprepared civilization, it has always gone badly. And it really reminded me of our anti colonialism talk that we had last week because i really actually appreciate that the prime directive seems to be an attempt not to colonize and i can appreciate that for what it is do i think that picard is embracing a specific interpretation of the prime directive that other people including crusher do not agree with yes but i can understand his point and i can also understand how he would think the onarans would not would qualify I- for being protected by the Prime Directive. Although, of course, he finds his little slippery yeah, way around it. he does.
1: It. He finds a loophole because bottom line is, is it imperialist or colonialist to drop a dime when you know that a civilization, a country, or whatever is being fucked over by somebody else? Is that... I don't know that that's wrong. And Picard doesn't think it's wrong either because he does it. He gets his little loophole solution but Crusher's sitting there the whole time saying this is wrong like i said i don't know i don't know if you know if if you find out that a country you're allied with is having espionage conducted on them by a third country it ain't wrong to tell them it's well, just not. But
0: that's the thing is that the Prime Directive is about countries with unequal amounts of power. It doesn't apply, for an example, to the Federation and the Klingon Empire because both of them have equal amounts I, of power in yeah. that situation.
1: I just, I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't buy it.
0: Well, well, we'll continue to have these conversations.
1: Oh, good. Uh,
0: because the Prime Directive is the Prime Directive. I did want to talk about. It's
1: funny. You know, I, the Prime I just, Directive. I really, the Prime Directive is a lot more malleable than the first law. And oh, yes. Good thing. Well,
0: because it's being interpreted by humans.
1: Right. Well, stupid humans.
0: Well, I, I just. I don't know. I, the Federation's commitment to anti colonialism, I just. I, I do appreciate that. And I can appreciate why Picard would hesitate.
1: It just. It doesn't feel anti-colonialist to me. Maybe it is, and that's fine.
0: The thing I did want to talk about here is that we get a lot more from Crusher in this episode than yeah. we have in previous episodes. She is, of course, against this whole situation. She wants right. to not only tell the Onarans what's happening, she wants to like provide aid to them, relief to help them through would, the withdrawal.
1: Would Bones have done that? Would w- is this the same subject position as Bones?
0: Probably, because both of them are characters that have incredible empathy for other people.
1: Right. You know, so I talked about how the characters may not be lived in, but the universe is. Talking about it, I find myself wondering if we've kind of short, shorthanded Crusher's character by putting in what Bones would have said. Because we know, I know Bones would have thought this was crap. But then again, so would Kirk. So it wouldn't have played out that way. It would have been Spock, who, right?
0: It would have been Spock saying, "Whoa, Spock whoa, would have whoa!" Been, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: That's how that episode would have worked. Yeah, I would I... have. I would be interested to see that. But you know, it's interesting. I I was definitely on her side. Yes. But and and I'm I didn't interrogate it at that time. But I'm like, of course she would say that. Why would? How do I know? I don't know enough about her to say of course she would say it. I know enough about Bones to say of course she would say it, which is fine with me. You know how I feel about Bones.
0: This leads to a very passionate argument between the two of them about mm-hmm. what to do and I because we talked about before how these two characters interact in a way that the other characters don't necessarily interact with him yet.
1: Right, because this entire episode could have been about these four people emperoring each other.
0: Yeah, you were like Star Wars ah, there I, the, it was. with their force field hands.
1: With their with their lightning hands. It, as I said, this episode could have been about them. But what the writers did was turned it into this kind of philosophical debate. I mean, that's yeah, what that's absolutely. what I'm saying. That's what they're doing.
0: Absolutely. Which is, of course, a Star Trek specialty, <laughs> turning things into philosophical debates. I also, I was going to ask you, so it was the 90s when it came out that the CIA had been giving drugs to black communities. Yes. So it would have been after this episode came out well, that we found that out.
1: I mean, the argument is who knew and who didn't and when. Right. I was a child, so I didn't, but I just ask
0: because that really stuck in my head. As Mm -hmm. because the Breckians have abandoned any sense of industry except for making this drug, like they don't have anything else going for them. And their whole society is committed to keeping this other society high. Well, so they can sell their drugs. And this really reminded me of the way that our government has also used drugs to quote unquote control minority populations.
1: Well, the thing about it is is that this is a conspiracy theory as far as I know, but back in the 60s, that was when, you know, the, that beginning of that theory that the government was using, the government was using drugs to pacify anybody. Right. You know, thinking about LSD and hallucinogenics. So, I mean, if you want to go with a real world referent, I'd go with that one because it's actually... It actually happened. It didn't actually happen, so far as we know. But having it known as a conspiracy theory and then turning it into the plot of an episode like this—that's what happened. Neat.
0: Yeah, and I think too, like before we find out these are drugs and that they're yeah. going through withdrawal, you thought you made the connection between the way they were saying, like, "Well, we have to. We ha- they have to pay for this medicine. We can't just give them this yeah. medicine." You said that there's a lot of parallels between that and like pharmaceuticals, pharma bros.
1: Right. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. I definitely Martin thought Shkreli. about Screlly here uh, and, and and the insulin. But well, what, what really got me and what got Crusher too was the realization of how small the doses are, how much medicine is in one of those barrels. And she comes back to it later. She's like, oh, you perfected the dose to make sure they, oh, look at you. You're terrible people. I hate you.
0: She's outraged. Well, it's funny because she's too. she's outraged when she thought it was medicine and when she found out it was a drug because yep. I think it goes everything that against everything she believes because the Federation is not it has not attached capitalism to medicine. Yeah, we right? we We've yeah, never, I mean, we have never seen a doctor refuse treatment to another person on this show.
1: I mean, it's kind of like getting upset that the pharma bros are doing stuff and then finding out that the pharmaceutical companies are running the smallpox blanket play again. Right. I don't really know how I'm supposed to go below outrage level. Like those are, it's like this isn't better and it's not worse. They are both real bad.
0: I I just think this works on a variety of levels. Like the episode, as you go through the episode, it's like this could be about medication. It could be about governments pacifying populations with drugs. It could be about just capitalism. Are there
1: any other sensitive topics that we may not be equipped to talk about that we could talk about today?
0: I know, right? <laughs> well, I, I was going to say. I have a profound
1: feeling of discomfort at the end I of know. this episode.
0: I-, I will say, what did you think about Tasha's little PSA to Wesley? Oh,
1: good. <laughs> we brought up the rape planet. Thanks, Tessa.
0: Well, she doesn't bring up Jesus. that part of it.
1: But I know it's there.
0: I, You know. I will say because I didn't remember this episode when she started this PSA. When Wesley, oh when gosh. Wesley, <laughs> it was to Wesley, too. When, when oh. Wesley does the incredible,
1: oh man,
0: like artificial kids thing, why do people get addicted no, to drugs? I was,
1: you know, I've never watched an episode of SBU, but, but all I could think of is, you mean to say, you mean
0: to say that, yeah, this was handled a lot better than I was afraid. God, was I was like, please to. don't
1: flash back again. Please don't flash back again. Please don't. Oh, thank God.
0: <laughs> well, see, that, that wasn't the part that I thought about. But I was afraid, this is the 80s. It is happening during the war on drugs. But this is actually a very empathetic explanation for why people mm-hmm. get hooked on drugs. Obviously, I don't think it's correct. I think drug right. dependency is a mixture of factors. But I still think that her explanation of poverty and situations that are outside of people's control do contribute to drug usage mm-hmm. and the fact that she is very empathetic the fact that she is saying like it's not their fault like there are other thing factors going on yeah. for a show in the late 80s I was afraid yeah. she was gonna like I know talk about She's how gonna
1: Nancy Reagan This, yeah South, I was which, a- by the way yeah by the way I just want to say you know Ryan made a comment about how he really appreciated the explaining the 80s to a millennial So I'll tell you, to go back to not just this, but an earlier topic, you know, the things that I really do remember, you know, because I was very young during the 80s and, you know, nowhere near where a lot of this stuff was happening geographically, the things that kind of I learned by osmosis by, you know, when my parents watched the news or, you know, whatever was uh, the Oliver North trial. Which you can connect several dots and get to uh, what you brought up earlier. I, it, it, and as a kid, I had no idea.
0: I, right. well, I don't
1: know who this Oliver North is. I don't know him from anybody. I, I don't know, but it was a big deal, that trial. And then, of course, Just Say No.
0: Right. Right. I
1: mean, like that had definitely filtered into classrooms. You just Say No and the DARE program
0: just saying like even when Wesley says I still don't get it and she just she just ends by saying I hope you never do and I thought I thought that that wasn't a just say no it wasn't dare it wasn't there's an epidemic it it was just very kind
1: I was surprised
0: yeah I I was shocked
1: I don't know that there's a way that they could have handled that well
0: no well they they also didn't know as much in like actually what causes it
1: is it ignorance if you try real hard not to find? No, something out? I am.
0: I am not saying that they are not culpable. I am just saying, like, obviously, whoever wrote this wanted to. Tr- they were trying to get it right. Oh yeah, that's all I was trying to say.
1: It, it's interesting too because that goes back to the whole utopian narrative of the Federation. That that once again, you cannot get to an actual utopia. It doesn't exist, and it never will. And if it did, it would be in a way that we cannot conceive of it. It would be a paradigm shift, like the Enlightenment. And it's very difficult for us, but, you know, for instance, to read Shakespeare. Shakespeare occurred in a different paradigm of humanity. We can interpret it in a way, but it's likely not that way that it was being interpreted contemporaneously what way was that i have no idea and neither do you which is the point right so fast forward here we are writing star trek episodes thinking about what a society like the federation would actually look like that is again trying to think through a paradigm change it's impossible it's interesting when they get these things like half right and it just it it just gives away that that idea that we cannot think past where we are now. And that's not a lack of imagination. Nobody's saying that. It's just you can't. You can't think through a paradigm.
0: Speaking of things that are half right in this episode, uh, before we end, I I did want to say that the part that they got right about this is that I do think that Crusher's attitude towards relieving the suffering is commendable like this idea that she doesn't want them to suffer from withdrawals like she had she's like I had the technology and I think a lot of people even today think that substance users often deserve pain and so yeah. like they're the ones who did it so they have to go through the pain it's a,
1: it's a character flaw yeah it's a sign of, and she
0: clearly doesn't yeah. see it that way she wants to help them
1: she would be in favor of the the places you can go to like safely yeah, do your illegal drugs so you don't overdose. Yes, she would be in favor of those. Uh, there are two in New York. Yeah, I, I think I believe so. Uh, yeah, and, but they exist in many countries in Europe.
0: And so she would definitely be the 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 person who would be advocating for those things, for sure. The thing that I think they get wrong, and I thought about this a lot at the end of the episode, is that Picard is convinced that his solution, which is to not help them repair their ships, so that eventually trade will cease between the two planets and they will discover after going through withdrawal that they're not addicted, right, or that they're not sick, that they're addicted. The problem with this is, is that the way it's portrayed in this episode is, oh, well, this is unfortunate, but there's not really anything else we can do you can die from withdrawal like it is yeah. not like a it is not safe yeah. to go through withdrawal especially if you've been addicted your whole life which all of these people have
1: what they're proposing here is not a direct solution to the problem and and this is this is an attempt at utopian thinking you change the system you stop attacking you know for instance we can try to do continue to do half measures of the war on drugs or we could just fix the root problem which has but the root problem that's some messy shit right Mm -hmm. yeah it's easier just to throw dollars at an abstinence program which doesn't really work for anything right because solving the problem is hard what picard has done is the half measure of saying the loophole is we can address the actual systemic issue Okay, bye.
0: Yeah, I, I honestly, though, think that this is bad writing. I think that the people who wrote this They're don't doing actually- they their best, man. I don't think they actually understand how drug draw, draw, withdrawal the works. They yeah. are
1: doing their best.
0: Yeah, but I, I give them, believe me, I give props to the ep- writer of this episode. I think for what they were working with, the time that they were working in, this is really good.
1: I think we should- agree while we sound like we're disagreeing for five more minutes uh, I, I know think we right should continue to do yeah that.
0: we should do that anyway this was a heavy episode um the only really fun fun part of either of these two episodes was the beginning of the second of symbiosis otherwise these were these were heavy so on that note next week please join us for the episode skin of evil and we'll always have paris You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. Until next time, live long and prosper.